Welcome back. This is our final session of the afternoon. Um, <laughs> we're going to have a, uh, a roundtable discussion with a number of our presenters uh, that you've seen throughout the day. Um, before we get started, I wanted to take uh, a moment just to, to uh, take the opportunity to offer thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and to the UVA Library, both of which helped fund uh, this symposium today. We're really grateful for the chance to have these conversations and, and that so many of you have been able to join us throughout the day. Um, as librarians, curators, educators, artists, collectors, and makers, we're all called to grapple with so-called alternative facts in mainstream media. When facts themselves are called into question, we look to the archive for answers. But the archive, as we've seen, doesn't contain all of the answers. History is always in the making. And so we also look to our communities to document and validate experiences that are not always represented in the mainstream media. We look to our families, our friends, our neighbors, our civic groups, our churches, political networks, and other sources to understand, affirm, and document what otherwise could be lost or effaced over time. We recover and save records to ensure these endangered histories are not lost. And today, in Charlottesville especially, we consider our own individual responsibilities in bringing facts to light. Danielle and I co-organized this symposium and are really grateful to have all of you present participating in this conversation. Um, we have heard today um, from these remarkable experts that an archive is many things. As Aisha Heichel suggested, it's like the heart-shaped herb of Wakanda, strengthening us with power. As we heard from Guoping Huang, it's like smart glasses that allow us to see Lhasa as it used to be at the same time as we see Lhasa today. It's an open book, an open narrative. And as we heard Maria Veronica San Martin tell us, like an etched plate, both visible and invisible, a way to search for the truth. Brian Weimer sees it as an objective real-time retelling, and that's how he records it. And Trevor Bond um, talks about it as Mukatu, a dilly bag for safekeeping. The archive is all of these things. Archives live like people. As Juliana Richardson said of the history makers, people never die. Or as Bethany Novisky put it, quoting Yusef Amawale, we have always been present. These communities need attention, though. Kiva Kadavar called us to think about the ways we need to give back to them. Samit Malik spoke of symbolic annihilation, which results every day when communities don't see themselves reflected in archives and in historical records. Peter Herdrick spoke of the destruction of thousands of artifacts within the Middle East. Johann Kugelberg described the precarious nature of contemporary urban ephemera and seminal musical recordings alike. 
we are called to engage more closely, more collaboratively, and more authentically with all these communities. We turn now to this panel of experts to discuss key challenges, next steps, and other issues that pertain to the matters we've been discussing today. We're leaving plenty of time to discuss these matters with you, our participants. And um, before we begin, I want to introduce Brenda Gunn, who has not yet spoken on our panel. Brenda um, is here at home in small special collections. She joined UVA Library as the Associate University Librarian for Special Collections and Preservation in August 2017, so about a year to this day. Prior to joining the Small Special Collections Library, Brenda worked as the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin, where she previously served as head of archives and manuscripts and director for research and collections. Brenda holds a master's in library and information science from UT Austin's School of Information, as well as a master of arts in English and a bachelor of arts in history from the University of Texas at Tyler. She's been elected to the Society of American Archivists Council and as a fellow of the Society of American Archivists. Brenda has served in leadership positions in state and national archival organizations, including terms as president of the Academy of Certified Archivists and the Society of Southwest Archivists, for which she founded the National Disaster Recovery Fund for Archives. Brenda just completed a six-year term on the steering committee of the Archives Leadership Institute and will bring a very important perspective to this conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to share uh, some questions that we've previously given to our panelists, and then we'll open up the discussion to the group as a whole. To begin, um, what are some of the key challenges you think we face in terms of curating and stewarding archives that are representative of our collective cultural heritage? And I know that you've brought up a number of these challenges already, but we would like to hear um, more thoughts you have about that. And I think we can open it up organically. Yeah, yeah, organically, please. All of you, we would like to hear from all of you, so please, as you see fit. Born digital is a nightmare. <laughs> you know, um, born digital is such an insane moving target that sometimes when I teach my classes, I start by asking them, you know, how is this time going to be remembered? And then. Sometimes we get to the point where we're all like, oh yeah, it's going to be the age of transitional technology. It started in the 19th century with multiple gauge, gauge uh, railway tracks and multiple versions of the telegraph and multiple versions of the 78 player. And then it spanned the 20th century and it's probably going to span the 21st century in its entirety. Because if you're in the middle of a paradigm shift, you can't recognize the next paradigm. And you actually kind of get confused by the last paradigm, too. So born digital, for me, is endlessly complex because it also affects my hip squeak business. So I'll, give, I'll, give you, I'll just try to give you one good example. Uh, a few years ago, I got offered to do the archive of Bitcoin. How cool would that be? Like, unbelievably cool. A, a bunch of like really, really strange, really nerdy guys, and all they had was like hard drives and emails and text messages. And it was literally going to cost probably a couple of million to organize and get all of this together and get some sort of cohesive inventory. 
So I put on my Gene Kelly costume again and started knocking doors and going gutter dance. <laughs> and uh, I could not find an institution who was ready to spend that kind of money on a born digital archive, even though it was Bitcoin. Sorry. What do you mean by born digital? Because we, we, we uh, were analog and now we're born digital. This, but, this, these are things that were only generated on the phone or on the laptop. This is an archive without any physicality whatsoever. It's all ones and zeros on hard drives and smartphones. But there's no such thing as an archive. Yes, there is some. Sorry? There's no such thing as an archive. No physicality. Well, that is it the hard drive? Is it the old laptop? Is it the beaten up iPhone? Well, it was all computer files. Okay, but the, this is what's happening as we move forward. I don't know if I would consider that because we went from analog to born digital and we were able to keep our processes in place. Now we're video. Um, email is complicated. We people are trying to figure that out. But I, I do believe um, that um, one of the issues is really monetary. You know, you were talking about. Um, and I, I would hope once again that there's some way that um, in this new world order um, that there can be some sharing of resources and expertise. For example, I've been talking to Harvard Law School mainly about um, there are African-American holdings and they have two black people in holdings and I've been trying to see if we can increase that number. And at the same time, um, they share collections with Howard University, Charles Hamilton, Houston, and Randall Robinson, Trans-Africa, and a few others. And um, they kept telling me about they have this scanner, and I said, okay, they scan. And so uh, I finally asked, how fast is a scanner? And the scanner scanned, and I'm not in the world of scanning, or digitizing, but the scanner scanned 8 to 14,000 pages an hour. Um, and they're trying to work out some, um, they're actually loaning it to the Widener Library in Harvard to do some work, but they're, um, they are working out some issues around OCR. But this is the thing, if they, if for whatever reason they have that and they can do that work and there can be collaborations and that can be done with also internally within Harvard but also externally with other institutions that that might be you know an interesting paradigm. Um, what format do you store the videos on? What digital format? Are, are uh, we um, are uh, our raw our JPEG two thousand. Yes, I mean our preservation copies are JPEG. Brenda, please. So I'm going to take it in a sort of a different direction, and you've already mentioned that I'm interested in disaster recovery for archives, and so um, so I'm going to just mention some research that's being undertaken by a couple of archivists. They're looking at archives where they're located and then climate change. And the research is taking location information for archival repositories in uh, US. I think they have plans to extend it um, beyond just the US. 
and then taking, uh, taking climate change data, mapping it onto these locations to find out where the vulnerabilities are for these archival repositories. And the preliminary results uh, may not surprise you that we have a lot of uh, repositories that are vulnerable for um, uh, increases in sea level and uh, temperature and humidity changes. So I think we, or I know I'm very interested in uh, keeping up with that information, um, mainly because I think we're, we're interested in diversity in the cultural record. Then we have to be aware of where our vulnerable collections are, whether they're in um, traditional repositories in these areas or they're within communities in somebody's uh, storefront or house. So, I, yeah, yeah. So. Thank you, Brenda, for mentioning that same project, actually. Um, that we're on the same page. Okay. We'll kind of bridge the, the conversation of environment and digital preservation and looking at how much it costs to preserve digital records and how much kind of climate that needs to be with digital items, uh, how much water it takes, uh, electricity it takes to preserve and to provide access to digital items. And so I think when we're looking at well, these two issues of digital records and climate, they really are interconnected. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that this is this is a pressing concern. Since we're citing the study, you should mention this is um, the work of Eric Tanzi and Ben Gold, Goldman. Yeah, Goldman. Um, and uh, uh, I was talking to a couple of people on one of the breaks today about um, another recent meeting around community archives that um, that I participated in, and it was supposed to be a conversation about digital preservation, about in part more digital archives, in part digitization of archives, and the sustainability of the digital infrastructure um, for this kind of work. And the meeting crashed to a sudden halt when we started to hear from the people who were stewards of these archives and, uh, and the, the group of sort of technical experts that were assembled to you know, offer recommendations um, realized how ill-equipped we were to talk about the challenges to the fundamental physical plant of community archives. That uh, this was a meeting in New Orleans, you know, much conversation about the sort of rising water table. Um, uh, many of the archives uh, were, you know, they're, they're in somebody's attic that is starting to leak and cave in, or the digital infrastructure that they're being, um, you know, sort of maintenance of these things depends on the one of their two volunteers who has a personal laptop that you know, she's using um, to create the website. And so I think uh, we were having conversations on one of the earlier panels today about this sort of difference in perspective um, between the majority serving institutions, the predominantly white institutions, um, predominantly minority serving institutions, um, and, and resource disparities and so forth. And there's just such a gap in understanding about the challenge that it feels to me like um, like there's a lot of work to be done uh, just in that space. Um, just on that moment, I want to uh, encourage people to apply for Digital Power. Uh, the, the application just came out to do the two-day workshop in Illinois. Digital Power has been going strong for about 
five years now. Um, they do workshops across the country. Um, do they encourage our small and mid-sized institutions to um, really consider the digital innovation as an issue? That's if you're if you're searching for it. It's um, digital power. P O W R R. To add to what Matthew was saying as well, I think one of the great challenges or great needs that I see is the need to build institutional capacity within communities that have been marginalized from the government record. And you know, I, I think that it's of course great to increase diversity within larger, um, more traditional institutions. But I think really empowering those communities themselves um, and and allowing infrastructure to grow from within those communities is key to, to actually a long-term and actually sustainable form of diversifying the archival record itself. Um, I, you know, having done this for the last 10 years, I've just seen how difficult it is to start something from scratch, how much you have to legitimize yourself to, to institutions that have power, that have funding, and how, how, how much sacrifice it takes, I think, from a community organization's perspective. I also realized that, you know, Wasada is not the first organization, the first group to try to collect and share South Asian American stories, but what we've been able to do, and this is to last for 10 years because we've been able to create an institution around the work that we do. And Often it's been based on the work of individuals in the past um, who, you know, at some point burn out, at some point said, you know, their interests change, their priorities change, or you know, they had health issues, things happen. It's a really big institution within these communities, I think it's key to ensuring long term sustainability. So, what are your, your long term plans then? I mean, my dream for Zada is that I leave and several institutions. That, I think, is the form of success for any community institution, is for any institution that the people who are involved with it in the short term to move on other things and the institution communicates new directions perhaps but you can just kind of move on the level. Um, I'm actually well this leads into our next question that we sent to you. I'm I'm interested in um, challenges in particular in relationship with some of the community building. And um, one of the questions we distributed ahead of time was asking about next steps that we in the professional community can take. Uh, uh, really, steps that we can take as individuals or as a community toward building relationships that steward cultural history in innovative ways and in inclusive ways as well. Thoughts? Um. When I bumped into the, uh, Mike Suarez a few minutes ago outside, the one thing he told me that I blew it by not mentioning in my talk slash rant was that when I was negotiating with Cornell to place the hip-hop archive with Cornell, one of the things that I really insisted on was that there would be an assistant curator involved that came from the culture or came from the community which was like such an unbelievable skeleton key for how to move the narrative forward. So I wanted to mention that. Okay. And, and, and I, I applaud that, that you did that. I did not know that you were, I, I talked to Cornell because they tell that they have this archive. And I did not know that the archive did not originate from them uh, directly. Well, you know, it's cool um, to get credit, but it's also cool not to get credit. It's okay. It's okay. But I do believe, I, I personally would like to see um, more surveys than if it were possible. Um, what I'm finding when I go into communities now, we're going around meeting the people that we 
we've been on Zoom, and explaining to them who we are in many ways, because to be set for interviews, half of them come, they have no idea you know, what they're interviewing for. And I remember when the announcement came out that the Library of Congress, you know, um, was going to be our permanent repository, some forgotten. Some people were, they said, well, we didn't get the interviews, we didn't do the interviews for her to turn it over to a white organization. I mean, there were those, those things that came, but now when I'm going around to different uh, parts of the community, um, where I feel that we can add value now is to ask who has what of the black experience in that community. No one knows what they have. This is what is sort of happening right now. We're working with huge, well, we're working with a variety of communities right now. And um, unfortunately, you know, there's not a lot any place. But I think that if, if in the asking of the question, then um, either a survey can be done, and then um, maybe there could be an effort to um, help that community in that way, wherever it is. The thing is, is that archives primarily are universities, libraries, and special collections, and some community archives. And that's really where the sources are. The, the resources exist more in the, the university setting. Um, and if you can sort of meld that. The other thing that we find that we can really help with is we are very incentivized to get the people we've interviewed their collections. So, you know, in the case of, let's say, Angela Davis, I was able to get her collection to the Schlesinger Library, you know, um, to um, uh, well, a bit of a variety of things that are starting to happen where I'm playing with matchmaker. And the only thing is that if the, in some cases, the repository has not exactly wanted the collection and it's been embarrassing on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you said, Yalman, earlier is this concept of an arc of time in an archive. It's a right. wonderful quote. Yeah, it is really wonderful. It made me think that that's, a, that's actually a very hopeful thing for me. Or it made me feel hopeful that there's possibilities for us to correct any wrongs in the, in the archiving of in our practices. And so, and this fits into some of our challenges with communities and trust and that sort of thing that, um, that we need to get in and uh, work on our partnerships and communities and reparation. This concept of reparation, I think, is something we need to really dig into and take uh, very, very seriously. And I think Aisha, in her talk earlier, really laid out um, some important steps of what to do and what not to do. And one of the things that I'll just plug out is this concept that um, we need to engage with communities openly and, um, and not in a position of we're the experts and we know everything that we're going to just, you know, hand over to you. We really need to listen to what they have to tell us and learn from them. And if they ask for, uh, for our help, then, then we're there to be partners with them. 
that obviously has some complexities attached to it as well, especially when you're working with like a living, breathing culture, because people are broke and things cost money. So, you know, I don't know if it was Edward Gibbon or Homer Simpson that said that money can be exchanged for goods and services. And that means that there are instances like in Oakland right now, there are two garages in central Oakland that hands down uh, contain the finest gathering of original Black Panther materials in America. Uh, pretty much every special collections librarian of any weight has been there and looked at the archive and left because the guy who owns the archive who's a relative to one of the founders of the Panthers, is Dr. Evil. He's like, he wants $10 million. So everybody's in like this waiting, like this fiscal waiting game that is also a component of this. And one of the first things that I do when I communicate with a client is that I tell them that there are three paths to take. There is the path of donating materials. There is the path of selling the materials, and there is the path of sale donation, which was always my favorite uh, manner of dealing with this, up until the orange-haired guy changed the law again in July. We haven't really figured out what's going on yet. Um, but in saying that, in this community outreach, sometimes you will deal with people who are 75 years old and live in a one-bedroom apartment and are completely broke, but maybe they're holding like the only photographic documentation of Thelonious Monk's first tour of the United States, you know what I mean? And then telling somebody like that that they're supposed to hand the stuff over to the rich white university without any kind of monetary replenishment is impossible when you're in the room. So everything becomes a matter of a community outreach of everyday life, no matter what. And it is a dialogue with the needs of the community that starts the moment that you step into the room. And another thing that I think enters into that is that I don't think that we are writing history. I think history is what's happening. And that what we actually have the ability to do is widen the playing field of what actually happened and our understanding of what happened. So it's not, it's, it's not history is not being written. History is happening. I wish we were doing a better job of uh, designing interfaces that <coughs> imply that kind of um, possibility and constant rewriting of history and sort of openness to community members mm -hmm. to lay out paths because I, that's that's a huge challenge I think in, in what we're doing and I, and I don't know that um, you know this is a this is a spot where the digital library community which is the group that I sort of spend most of my time with intersects too little with um, the archival community so I think archivists know that they create those possibility spaces and that that's what assembling um, these materials is all about. And that the, the collections that we bring together um, complicate notions of the past and imply multiple sort of speculative future paths and that they're building blocks for something, right? 
Um, but the digital library interfaces that we design look very much like the past is an answer to a question or it's a monolithic kind of um, set of things. And that the um, and that the the present state of things is the logical outcome of that accumulated past. Um, and I just think there's so much space in so much design space if we could kind of um, mobilize uh, artists and designers um, to be working more with archivists and digital library folks to design interfaces that, um, that open up those possibilities and that are really sort of available to communities. Not to search the collected contents of what somebody else has brought together and, and you know, set as their past, but to be assembling them and to be reconfiguring them and to be sort of charting new directions through them. So that's sort of my hobby verse, I guess, about um, digital library design right now, that it's, um, it feels like it's it's stagnated, and uh, that's that's a huge problem. And kind of similar to what we're talking about is about looking at institutional policies and looking at how your policies prohibit certain things happening within with donors um, in terms of copyright, in terms of how much you're giving over to your institution. Looking at your spaces physically, uh, are they are they are the ADA accessible? Um, how accessible are your, are your collection of your finding aids? And looking at um, how uh, you know, your IP procedures, do they really kind of limit who can get access to your, to your repository? Um, and all of the institutional you know, limits, um, do you require a proposal to get into your work archive? Um, or some archives, such as Chicago, um, nameless, want you to have the documentation <coughs> Basically written before you get into into the repository, and so those limits, you know, and making it more open. Those situations are always completely messed up. And this was like one thing that we debated endlessly about the Cornell Hip Hop Archive, because I I felt that our mission would fail unless a 12-year-old kid who wanted to find out about Grandmaster Flash would get a PDF back and a response or an 80-year-old engine driver who was, you know, trying to figure out like African-American dialect in Baltimore. But everybody had to get a response. But that's also easy to say when it is a big and wealthy research library like Cornell University, because it is about, you know, how many hours you can actually work in the day and how many questions you have the stamina to answer and so forth. But open source should always be a buzzword for like everything we do. I, I, I disagree with that because open source is, I mean, I know it's very popular, but it's expensive. And, and it's not, in a lot of cases, it's not sustainable. I mean, that's the issue that EPLA is grappling with right now. Um, and, that, and that's the issue that um, oh, the, the archive out of um, Minnesota is dealing with. You know, search. Umbra. Umbra is, you know, I mean, they told me recently that they're just not sustainable. And I, and I think, this, this is the thing, I think that, I, I believe that a lot of times um, community archives are, like we were able to do more outside of the traditional environment that we wanted, that we could find no university that wanted to partner with us. 
move that started. So we were able to do more outside, but at some point, I believe um, that there has to be the, the ability to sort of merge back in, or at least the partnerships that allow you to do this, because all of this is really expensive. I mean, you know, um, and I'm talking about things that last beyond one, two, or three, or four, you know, generations, you know. And, and otherwise, you are creating something that doesn't transition. I mean, I live in a video world, and the fact is, is that had I not transitioned at the time to HD and, you know, born digital, um, there were, there are a lot of institutions that were being told by the organization MIA that they were going to, you know, that they, the machines weren't going to work. And, and that's what happened. My, you know, there's things that I never digitized and I'm having trouble finding the three quarter inch deck, you know. And so that's what I would say. But I also, this is, I think, you know, we talk a lot about building, you know, better mousetraps and better interfaces and, you know, the state of the art technology. And I really believe that the fundamental issue a lot is lack of knowledge of the communities that people are trying to help. And those communities want to feel respected. Like, you have taken something your whole life and you have held it, and you know, if someone comes and shows that they also value it, and they're gonna take good care of it, then your heart risks easier for them, because you may have been the only ones who are holding those things. So I just think some basic things. I've seen in some instances, you know, where I've made connections where the repository was not, like they had, the person who was going in to meet with the person never really did the research on the person that they were approaching. So it's basic, like if someone has a read the biography, you know, we should be knowledgeable about that. And, and that's what I would like to see a little more of, and discussions, because unless you know, you know, like, give you an example. The largest, one of the largest groups studying black history young white females. And, and, um, and this is much discussed in the academy and all that, but the, the thing that I want to say is that often you want to know what does that person know about the black community? Meaning, like when, when the people, when um, Spielberg was doing, um, when, his, when the Shoal Foundation was operating, and they were going community to community, and they were trying to determine who knew, like it wasn't enough that they, someone had read the diary of Anne Frank. They wanted to have some more in-depth knowledge. I think those, some of that basic thing would, would help a lot in the communication. And then the other thing that, you know, when you're dealing with, dealing with majority community, or I can speak about the black community, is just the appropriation. You know, like people claiming things that they're their own. Like Howard University, I'm not talking about school, but they had a grant, a clear grant with GWU. And then I guess when the website came out, it looked like their collection was really George Washington University's collection. They were upset about that. And so, you know, they, and that's all they talk about right now, but they have less than 1% of their collection processed. And so the thing is, is that they need partnerships. Their, that collection is amazing. 
the collection of adornments in the garden is just simply amazing. And, and, and so the thing is, is that how we draw together to make sure that that collection is not only processed, but that it is, you know, digitized and made accessible. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really, I feel. Well, and that's precisely the interface piece that I'm talking oh, about. Because okay. it's a rhetorical, you know, move to provide access to make a presentation of this material online. And when it's being done in a completely homogenous way, um, without uh, the, the participation of the people whose belongings these collections actually are, um, and without sort of um, the ability to sort of make evident the kinds of arguments and stories and so forth that are true to those archives, and they get smashed into some other um, institution's default interface. But don't you think that really, in some respects also, in the world, in the digital world, the issue is who owns what? You know, so what is ownership in that space? So if I, if, if I own things and you digitize them for me, right, and then I say you can have, you know, whatever you have a copy, or however, who owns it? You know, and who gets attribution? It was much simpler in the old days, like if I have an artifact, you know, whatever, then I own that, and then that gives me value. So what is the value quotient yeah. in this new world? And how do you work out those issues? Right. You don't have time. Yeah, well, I mean, we might be actually getting back to your question, Danielle <laughs> and Barbara, because it is about that. That's about relationships, and it's mm -hmm. about the relationships, the agreements, and understandings that um, that come before that act of digitization and, and making it accessible. So we've explored um, a lot of these areas that need to be addressed. Um, what are other topics we haven't talked about? I mean, I mean, we've talked about next steps, concrete actions we can take, but um, what are the things that are lurking in the wings of the conversation we've had today that haven't been said, that need to be said? So yeah, one thing I would remember, maybe the ethical obligations that we have to vulnerable marginalized communities that go beyond just like things like copyright. Um, thinking for just a moment now, you know, as we've all been talking about, and political climate in the country, the fact that people are being denaturalized, people are um, being threatened, um, people are being denied passports based on, um, yeah, so, um, you know, by making stories, you know, I think, of course, I work with the digital archive, and I'm very invested in the process of making stories accessible digitally, but also think it's important to think about um, how we protect the communities that we're serving, and, and not further um, make them vulnerable. Yeah, I think when, when I was thinking about an answer to this, that's precisely what I wanted to get at, too. The, the degree to which uh, all of our technologies of access and sharing right now are the same technologies that are technologies of surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I, I think we talk about that a little too little, although I'm smiling at, at um, Yasmin now because she co-chairs and um, founded a working group uh, in DLF on technologies of surveillance, um, where some of those conversations are starting to happen. I wonder if when we think about our ethical responsibility, uh, not only to the communities where the stuff is coming from, if, if the panel would like to comment a little bit about what is our ethical responsibility to the generations to come? 
do we not have a profound responsibility to create the conditions of possibility for future study and future knowledge creation and future storytelling to the sequent generations who have yet to be born? And isn't it incumbent upon us now to, to wield our lives and our resources to those generations even as we pay attention to our current um, responsibilities to, to the people um, in our own time? Isn't it a dual responsibility, partly to the present, but profoundly to the future? The answer is yes. Except <laughs> <laughs> that I shook my head instinctively because I don't think it's a dual responsibility. I think it's a continuum. And Fair if enough. I'm not thinking of it as a continuum. That's, that's where you, you know, that's, that rupture is problematic. That automatically runs into the problem that I was hearing echoing today because it, you can't absolutely preserve everything. And you unconsciously are filtering at all times. So there will be no, no way that you can really give a neutral. You know, I, I thought the documentary about Charlottesville's, you know, our, our streets was really powerful and at the same time, surely was. Um, you know, I had to be selected in order to be a film that one could sit and watch in one, one sitting. Um, so I just, I, I love the ethical imperatives I'm hearing, but also feel the, the kind of um, melancholy you feel when you're thinking about archives, because they can't possibly just have everything for the future, the future to see what they want to see in. But I, I thought, you know, the presentations did a good job of explaining the kind of wish to try to, to It's taken to the ground in a non-scientific way with a backhoe or by looters. It, it loses its scientific. 
it just becomes an object at that point. That is arguably the, uh, the most important argument for uh, the archaeologists who took years on the museum and object side fought the fight against the against the trade, against the trade in cultural heritage material alone. And we say, look, you take that stuff out of the ground, and we don't know where it's from. We don't know what if you have a, if you have Roman coins, they could be from goodness knows anywhere, right? It doesn't do you any good to have Roman coins out of context. But what does a lot of good is to find uh, Roman statuary with coins next to it that have exile. That's really really helpful. <laughs> I mean, social media collecting is an interesting. Um, analogy here, right? Because that, that, that is, I mean, it's still selective when people are doing that work. They're zeroing in on certain communities or certain hashtags or whatever. But it has been very much the kind of trawler approach. We don't know what we're going to do with it now, but if we don't grab it now, we're, we'll lose our chance, so let's get it. And then maybe techniques will, um, will evolve to help us analyze it.
repository perspective, um, a lot of times when your your primary constituents are students and faculty on campus, and making those sorts of things available not only you know, locally but also for the larger scholarly community is is of prime importance, and so. Um, feedback from faculty, feedback from um, that academic community a lot of times plays into uh, decisions about digitization and making available those sorts of things. But it is a tricky, it's a very tricky thing. Yeah, I think one of the interesting byproducts of making materials accessible online is just that you lose complete control not just about how they're used, but often about awareness about how they're being used. I mean, you know, like a lot of websites, we use Google Analytics to kind of see who's bringing, what's bringing traffic to the website, and we'll often go and look and see where, you know, things will be posted on forums and on, like, different bulletin boards and things that you just never would expect um, how those materials would be used in that way. And so, this, you know, as an archive, I think you think of it, you might be speaking to one particular audience, but you're often speaking to audiences that you can't even imagine, and creates all kinds of complications that you can. I mean, it's such a good question. And uh, I don't have a good answer, but I think that's part of, for me, part of the awareness is the lack of uh, awareness and control that, that that exists once you put things out into the digital space. But, but I thought your question was that were you you were saying that you were troubled by the, the you know the decision not to is that what you were saying? Well, I can see I can really. <laughs> uh, I can understand the rationale given from the institution that already holds, and they already hold the newspapers, the white supremacist newspapers, the KKK specifically, uh, bulletins and broadsides. So they're held, they're collected. They just didn't want to participate in this grant uh, effort to digitize them because mm -hmm. it would increase their accessibility. So I can understand the rationale for that because in our point in time right now, that digital communication <coughs> is an active recruiting tool for these papers, right? But I would also argue that our limited accessibility to the full scope of this nation's history has made it perhaps a less difficult road that we walked to get to where we are right now. I mean, the digital is basically a tool, right? And all tools can be used for good and can be used for bad. And so I think, you know, as a society, we can make determinations about which tools we think should be allowed commonly and which tools we think should be restricted or not allowed. And, and um, I think as, you know, that's hopefully not going to be uh, legislation in place in terms of what can be digitized or not, but I think as architects, we have a responsibility to think through the implications of what this may make available online, who that hurts, who that potentially hurts, who that potentially makes vulnerable, or who that potentially empowers for good or for bad. You had a second question. Do you want to go ahead and pose it? I'll come back on the last question. Cool. Does this go along the same line? Because it's about, as we digitize things, we create data, like digital objects or data. And as we have more analytical tools that can process the data, the
phase of machine learning. So there's also, um, in addition to surveillance of data and surveillance, we can still go back to our, our physical reading rooms and cameras in the reading rooms and the kinds of questions and um, requirement of identification when someone comes into those spaces. And I, I think this is an area, in addition to descriptive practices and um, appraisal practices that Archivus as the larger community really needs to do a whole lot of work in, in soul searching. I wonder if I could just send this in a, a, a different direction for a moment. Um, for the last couple of years, I've had to, I've been a digital publisher for 20 years. And over the last couple of years, I've had to think a very great deal about my digital archives. And I've got a, a couple of different kinds. And one I'd like to mention now, um, because it might open up in another direction, is, is this. I have an archive that I assembled in Alaska in the 80s when I was the amanuensis of a Denekina Athabascan writer, Peter Kalifornsky, who was the last speaker of his dialect, or his version of his language, but his first writer, and a man of a, a, an immense literary sensibility. So together, um, I, with our work, we retranslated his stories from, from his written <coughs> stories into English versions. Um, and our conversations then went with these. So I had, as it turns out, this huge manuscript that I was trying to turn into a book. Well, I also then uh, rediscovered that I had audio tapes that he had made of himself reading his language and, um, and hit copies of his manuscripts. How to put this together? Um, so I looked into digital humanities for a little bit, and that was too big and complex and dependent on resources that I had no way of having, and also was taken control away from my materials. Peter Kalifinsky by then had died. Um, what I ended up doing was going to a proprietary format. Um, Apple came out with the iPad and the iPad 2, and its free application iBooks offer. So I could build a kind of representation of how Peter and I had worked together with the translations and the, the relevant conversations in which he talked about the backstory. With the iPad, I could also introduce his audio files. I could make words in his language accessible. If you touch them up came a bubble with, you know, glossary. So I could make this thing multimedia and, and something like a representation or um, an analog, as it were, of how we work together. It wasn't linear. But what turned out to be really interesting once I sort of had a first example of this done was one, um, I've been trying to, I've been talking with various institutions over the years, informally, about where to place my, my, my archives, finally, especially for this project. And one um, inhibition is uh, librarians and archivists don't quite know how to deal with iPad materials because of versioning, for one thing. Yeah. But the other side of that is that I was able to put in the hands of people who needed it, in their very hands, 
this work because in Alaska, all sorts of people use iPads and, um, and iPhone hunters use iPhones when they're out hunting so they won't get lost. I, I showed the, the first volume of this book to an 80-year-old woman who spoke Peter's language. And she went on her own iPad. And she could go through and point out where words in her dialect were different from his. What I loved about this and what surprised me because I had thought about it was I could take this material and it wasn't it was in a way archived because it was encapsulated, but it went back right into the very hands of the people who wanted and needed it. And that'll stay current for a while. What happens after that of archiving is the great challenge for librarians, I think. But this might be an intermediate way for even institutions to think about distributing material. Apple won't tell you that, but it's not going to stay current that long. Uh, Apple won't tell you that, but it's not going to stay current that long. Yeah, I have a question in relation to this quote, this white supremacist material. Uh, I don't think that the archives need to, the libraries need to actually concern themselves with this right now. Because the FBI and other kinds of uh, places are archiving it like mad. Uh, uh, at some point, uh, the libraries, and, and we have a very different perspective on this. Uh, the, but right now, it's not a problem. That's being saved, being analyzed, being chunked, being uh, manhandled and, uh, and examined uh, six ways of Sunday. So that's my particular point of view on this right now. <laughs> Getting back to Catherine's point, I just want to make a comment. I was at a conference recently um, where the question of access did come up with respect to digital interfaces and archives, and there was a point made um, actually had to do with uh, Tibetans um, who um, usually don't have laptops. They do have iPhones. And the limited ability that a lot of people have in the world internationally to um, the equipment that they um, that we take for granted at a place like this institution, many people just have an iPhone, and so their access to the wonderful um, archives that we're building, the digital resources we're putting together, um, really, if they're not if they're not friendly um, for an iPhone user, um, if they're not also easily navigable for people who don't have English as their first language. Of it, if they're not intuitive, then those materials are not going to be um, available to millions of people. And so I just wanted to draw attention more to Catherine's point, um, which resonates with um, feedback I've heard from other people in other parts of the world. And it's something um, I'd be interested in hearing more from, from the panel on in terms of building interfaces um, and thinking about users and how they, how they're um, using your archive, um, are you thinking about people accessing it on a phone um, in small screens? Um, and maybe Samit, Juliana um, can speak more about that. Yeah, we're, our, ours is accessible on the phone right now. And that has made it usable in schools because 
we used to, we went through a whole period when we were flash-based, but we found in the urban schools, um, I mean, that there are just not computers in the schools. And even if they're doing home plans very long. And so um, we were taking our physical people into the schools as role models until we began, you know, get something in there and we have to come up with other issues. Um, we believe a lot in public libraries right now because schools, you know, in the curriculum, um, they're not, uh, you know, they're teaching to the test and it's really, it's sort of hard to fit in, especially if you're a humanities-based project. I don't know if you're finding that, but we, yeah, we should that. So, but, but now people can get it on their iPhone and we're excited about that, so. But you have to do updates. I mean, it's, there's, this is not, you know, it's not, nothing's free about it, so. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case for us as well, where, you know, I mean, the paradigm and how you design interfaces has completely shifted in the last five to 10 years with the, you know, kind of preponderance of mobile devices. And so, um, yeah, I think like what you said is absolutely right, that it takes constant vigilance to kind of be on top of things, which when you have limited capacity is very difficult to do. And I think the kinds of funding that supports allowing to do that is the funding that's very difficult to come by, right? That's right, because we, you know, we're now, we have to be ADA compliant, and that is on the bottomless bit, especially if you have video, I mean, it just seems like a bottomless bit, but we're working on it. So, what was that? It's not, it's not even just the design question of, um, you know, how, how do you engineer these interfaces to work well on a small screen, or, or to be touch-ready, and that sort of thing. Um, but it's also about uh, designing for low bandwidth oh, environments yeah, too, yeah, right? And that's something that I think that um, that Western libraries often don't don't think about. Yeah, right. Um, there is a little uh, movement in the digital humanities community that's trying to draw attention to these issues, um, sort of under the banner of minimal computing, um, and that's work that's being done by Alex Heal, who's a UVA um, grad, and uh, Gentry Sayers from UVA. Thank you. And, and Alex Hill is coming to speak here in had another question um, and, and I imagine the, the answers might differ depending on what audiences you're thinking of but um, for, for all of you I was wondering how you have been able to advocate 
for the value of community archives. And, and again, whether you're talking to funders or to the community itself, that answer would obviously change a little bit. So I'm wondering how you advocate for that and what some of your greatest successes have been in advocating for the importance of, of this sort of archiving. Uh, micro history got lost. You know, it was very, very 
dare I say, trendy amongst historians of the 70s and 80s, that if you found out, if you have a lot of information about a really narrow field, that you could extrapolate that field and get further understanding of either related fields or parallel fields. So that is probably my biggest Don Quixote moment, is like wanting to bring microhistory back. And the idea of utilizing thinking about microhistory, especially in the connotations of what's gonna happen with blockchain, uh, and archives over the course of the next 10, 15 years, but we're not getting into that now. <laughs> the first page project is an example of micro history, so like I mentioned, we've collected 400 stories. Yeah. We call them participatory micro history because that's exactly what we're No, let's bring micro history back. People mentioned digital. Archive. What, where's your physical manifestation, and are, and are you worried about preservation of that? So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I keep hearing about this, but then I keep thinking, well, where's the physical, you know, residing? Because we also have a digital archive, but I have the physical tapes, or now I have, um, I have digitized files, but they have to be redigitized. That's what they're doing at the Library of Congress. They're redigitizing them every three to four years, because I was going to have to do that. And so I just wonder, where, where's the other part of you? <laughs> <laughs> my question is, am I worried about it? Yes. No, no, but I'm wondering, no, how, how are you preserving that? That's what I'm just wondering. Like, Because that's the most important part. Like, when we were processing, our, when we were digitizing our collection, I could have some place to say just throw the tape away. The Library of Congress didn't want them, and I made them take the tapes. And that was the smartest thing because we had made some errors and we had to get those tapes back to, you know, or I would have lost the material. It's the struggle against the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and mean, I think, you know, there are those questions about digital preservation and preservation. I think it's worth noting that digital preservation is something that is a constant and Process of vigilance, basically, right? But, but where are your, where, where are your original, like your recording, where, do, where are those stored? So we, um, you know, we're a post custodial archive, like I said, so we don't actually physically collect materials ourselves. What we do is digitize materials and allow the originals to remain with. With the, with the first, oh, I say, oh, so We're basically. <laughs> 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 I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. No. No. Despite the fact that I do digital archiving work, I also greatly believe in the importance of physical archiving. I don't think that we can go to it all digital. Everyone can be all digital. So this makes me wonder if you shouldn't think a little harder about um, valuing and ensuring um, the digital archive you have, since you don't have any control over the physical, those still reside in the communities and you know, there could be flood or you know, a natural disaster or man-made disaster that would wipe something, something out. So I hadn't thought about the implications for value in a post-custodial model until, until we're talking about it now. Well, the arc of this archival conversation <laughs> has now almost come to its close. Um, 
First, let's thank this wonderful lineup of speakers. I want to thank again all of our moderators um, for the work they put into putting this together, um, to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, UVA Library, and to my colleagues at Rare Book School. I also want to say that we are about to um, uh, begin a reception, which will be out there, but there's going to be um, a very special book performance um, conducted by Maria Veronica San Martin. Um, on moving memorials, and some of those incredible materials that you saw earlier today in her video are going to be here. And she's going to be, yes, there's smiles in the audience. (laughs) I'm smiling too, because this is really special. Um, We've talked so much about objects and artifacts, and what would a conference be on archives without material? And so I hope um, you'll go out and get a drink, Um, have a little food, and then come back here. You can bring food and drink into this room. Do not bring it on the stage. (laughs) The books will be up here. Um, And I hope hope you'll do that. Um, The reception starts. Um, When you leave that door, Maria will begin her performance in here at 5.30, and it will only be 20 minutes, so um, don't go too far. Um, And I hope you will return for that. Thank you once again for this amazing symposium. Thank you.